You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. Just a heads up before we get started, this episode acknowledges the existence of sex and discusses the exploitation of enslaved peoples. Listener discretion is advised. In his play Menachme, written sometime in the early 2nd century BCE, the Roman playwright Plautus imagines a pair of twins, separated at birth, both going by the name Menachmus. One of the twins, unhappy in his marriage, berates his wife and swears he's going to go visit a neighboring courtesan instead. If you weren't so worthless, if you weren't so foolish, if you weren't so wild and idiotic, whatever you see that your husband hates, you'd hate it too. And I'll tell you something else. If you do this kind of thing to me again, I'll pack you up and ship you back to your father as a divorced woman. Whenever I want to go out, you call me back. You keep nagging me. Where am I going? What am I doing? What business am I involved in? What did I do while I was out? It's like living with a customs agent. Do I have to tell you everything I've done or am doing? I've spoiled you for too long. Now let me tell you what I'm going to do. Since I provided you with maids, food, wool, gold, dresses, even purple ones, and whatever else you needed, if you're wise, you'll steer clear of trouble. You'll stop interrogating your husband. And furthermore, just so you don't think that the time you've spent spying on me has been wasted, I'm going to find a mistress to take out to dinner. Today. When Menachmus meets up with the courtesan, we discover he's stolen one of his wife's dresses to offer as a gift. I stole this today at great risk. In my opinion, Hercules was in less danger when he stole the Amazon's belt. <laughs> Take this as a gift for yourself, since... You're the only one alive who obeys me. When the other Menachmus shows up in town, mistaken identities, confusion, and comedy ensue, culminating in the reunion of the two brothers. Plautus' play would go on to inspire William Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors and the 1938 Rodgers and Hart musical The Boys from Syracuse. However, in the later adaptations, the married couple reconciles assuring the audience that domestic bliss will follow the play's happy ending. Plautus' play, however, ends with the announcement of an auction. There will be an auction in the morning a week from today. For sale, slaves, furniture, houses, and farms. Everything must go to whoever's got cash on hand. Also, for sale, a wife, if any buyer's interested. I doubt the whole auction will bring in more than 50000 Now, dear audience, farewell. And please give us loud applause. The original ending reveals a disturbing truth about the position of women in the ancient Roman world. Under Roman law and custom, married women primarily lived at the mercy of their husbands— and the appearance of a rival for her husband's affections could easily leave a Roman woman with nothing. 
The custom of obsequium, under which Roman wives owed obedience to their husbands, blurred the line between wives and servants. When Roman husbands turned their attention to their slaves, granting their mistresses prestige and power in the household, their wives lost what little privilege and control they had. Without a legal means to protect their positions, some Roman matrons turned to magic, casting spells to bind their rivals, separate husbands from their mistresses, and, in some cases, eliminate the competition altogether. The defixio, or Latin curse tablet, usually took the form of an inscription on a thin sheet of lead intended to either bind the victim, rendering them powerless, or to dissolve a relationship between the victim and another via supernatural means. Lead was especially helpful in binding inscriptions because of its association with both coldness and heaviness. For example, one tablet dating from the 2nd or 3rd century CE exhorts the gods to let their anger land heavily on the victim, just as this lead has weight. The place where a tablet was stored also reflected its purpose. Popular locations for cursed tablets included sanctuaries, burial sites, sources of water like rivers and wells, and the dwelling of the victims. The placement of the tablet marked the final sealing of the spell and the beginning of its effect on its subject. One first-century curse links the downfall of its victim with the sinking of the lead tablet itself into the depths of a well. Though lead was the favored medium, similar inscriptions have been found on papyrus, marble, terracotta, tin, copper, and other materials depending on the requirements of the spell. A love spell might be written on a seashell, sacred to the goddess Venus, or on a sheet of copper. A terracotta figure might be used to render the victim likewise brittle and immobile. Some curse tablets included conditions that would remove the curse, like the return of a stolen item. Others included conditions so impossible that it rendered the binding permanent, as in one tablet that stated the inscribed would receive forgiveness and be released only after selling a bushel of cloud and a bushel of smoke. Whatever the form or conditions laid on the curse, the most important ingredient was the inscription of the subject's name, creating a permanent bond between the practitioner and their target as long as the inscription lasted. You see, a curse tablet is no ordinary object. Regardless of the chosen material, once created, objects containing curses were bound to their creators, a reflection of their frustrations, their desires, their fears, and their malice. The victim, too, became part of this association, tied to the curse and its creator until the curse was lifted or one party or another was dead. The curses themselves could vary in form, but a significant number set out to separate couples who were suspected to be in an intimate relationship. 
One first-century tablet, for example, begs that Quintilla never again be with Fortunalis. A third-century tablet asks Infernal Jove and Infernal Juno to hand over to the shades below Aurelius Sinianus Caesarianus. The magician wrote Aurelius's name upside down and commanded, Sylvia, do you perceive your husband turned upside down, in the same way as his name has been written? While some curses were directed at married victims, a handful of cursed tablets appear to have been directed at female slaves or freedwomen. The earliest of these is a tablet dating to the 2nd century BCE, recovered from a tomb in Pompeii. Though the tablet itself is deeply damaged, its target appears to have been Philematium, the slave of Hostilius. Nor were freedwomen safe, as tablets from places like Cumae, Campania, and Messenia curse Navia Secunda, the freedwoman of Lucius, and the freedwomen Claudia Helena and Valeria Arsinoe, describing the latter as a bitch in heat. A tablet produced in the first century and recovered from a Roman burial site attempts to bind one slave woman's charms, commanding, just as the corpse who is buried here is unable to speak or make conversation, thus may Rodina be corpse-like, and be neither able to speak nor able to make conversation with Marcus Licinius Faustus. Another offers Danai, the new slave of Capito, as a sacrifice, telling the gods of the underworld, may you have this woman as a welcome victim, and may you devour Danai. Another offers them Dionysia, slave of Donatia. A second-century tablet from Latium found folded with a nail through it states, Infernal gods, I hand over to you Tuke, the slave of Carissus, that everything she does should turn out against her. Gods below, I commit to you her limbs, complexion, figure, head, hair, shadow, brain, forehead, eyebrows. The intent behind each curse may vary slightly, but the end result is clear. They ask the gods to ravage the beauty, charm, and wit of these women and render them powerless. The vast majority of these curse tablets aren't signed, for obvious reasons. In both the Roman Republic and Empire, harsh punishments existed for magicians and sorcerers. One third-century law code specified that those party to the use of magic should be thrown to wild beasts, while the magicians themselves should be burned alive. In addition, both local authorities and communities could decide to take the law into their own hands, executing or expelling suspected magic users. It's not always clear who placed these curses, but there are some clues. The first is the target. Who would seek to use magic against a slave or a freedwoman, some of the least powerful people in Roman society? Who would specify that the gods should stop them talking to their masters or mar their beauty? The most likely suspects are Roman wives, attempting to rid themselves of potential rivals for their husband's attention. Like all Romans, Roman women were subject to the power of the paterfamilias, the male head of their household, whether that be their father, brother, husband, or adult son. While Roman men might hope to age out of their father's control, 
Roman women could obtain independence after their father's deaths only if they remained under their father's legal custody after marriage. Even then, a series of legal restrictions could require even legally independent women to be represented by a male authority for all major economic and legal transactions. Elite women, at least, enjoyed the possibility of controlling their own wealth. Though they were explicitly excluded from public affairs officially, some elite Roman women found they could use their influence with their husbands to exercise some form of public power. Some Roman authors found this practice of women exercising their legal independence, personal wealth, and soft power to be an intolerable danger to the state. In order to fund Rome's wars with Carthage, the Roman Republic passed the Oppian Law in 215 BCE, which regulated women's wealth, forbidding women to own more than an ounce of gold, to wear multicolored clothing, and to ride around town in a carriage, since the economic hardships of war rendered such public displays unseemly. Following the end of the war, the law was repealed in 195 BCE amid heated debate. The venerable statesman Cato the Elder argued that if women were allowed to compete with one another in the opulence of their dress without the restrictions of the law, there would be no way to curb their extreme spending. The consul Lucius Valerius offered the following rebuttal. Will we forbid women the use of purple? And although you, a man, are allowed to use purple for the blanket on your bed, will you not allow your wife to have a purple cloak? Even your horse will be more beautifully arrayed than your wife is clothed. Although the Oppian Law was ultimately repealed and wealthy women were given the right to dress according to their station, the anxieties men shared about women who rose to power or received too much independence continued. When Julius Caesar and Mark Antony each famously and publicly entered into romantic affairs with the Egyptian queen Cleopatra, Rome was scandalized. It didn't help that Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, and Antony's wife, Octavia, were beloved figures, honored as obedient and faithful Roman matrons. The story began to circulate that Cleopatra was a sorceress, possessed of powers of seduction that could topple the Roman state itself. In individual Roman homes, however, Husbands frequently had affairs with their social inferiors, especially their slaves. With few legal protections, female slaves found themselves in a difficult position, unable to refuse their master's advances and falling afoul of their mistresses as a result. Since the entire household revolved around the will of the pater familias, a Roman man shifting his attention from his wife to a female slave threatened to overturn all sense of domestic order. The obedience of a wife to her husband was supposed to feel qualitatively different from the servitude of a slave to her master. But in fact, the line that separated the two was extremely fine. Wives who found themselves out of their husband's favor could also expect to become the subjects of rumors of infidelity themselves. After all, their neighbors might say, there must be some reason he's unhappy with her. Such unhappy women would soon find themselves shunned by polite society. We also have to admit the possibility that a slave woman, given no other opportunity, might attempt to advance herself by replacing her mistress, as some manage to, or by convincing their masters to free them. 
Latin sources are full of the complaints of masters who freed their beloved female slaves, only to discover that their feelings weren't mutual. A curse on a Roman tombstone tells the story of Octe, a freedwoman, describing her as a treacherous, tricky, hard-hearted poisoner. When her master, besotted by love, freed her, she went off with an adulterer, cheated her patron, and took away his slaves, a girl and a boy, as he lay in bed, leaving him an old, lonely, despoiled man. Broken-hearted. Given the complex and shifting power structures in a household in which the master decided to favor a slave over his wife, it's no wonder that some Roman wives, desperate to retain their positions, reputations, and marriages, turned to magic. curse tablets didn't emerge in a vacuum. They were the products of massive webs of social interaction and tension. They had a complicated context, and they may have functioned as a kind of pressure valve. In the midst of an intolerable situation, like a Roman matron finding that her position in the household has been reduced, and that she's been replaced in her husband's affections by a subordinate, a curse may provide some relief. Cursing someone is, in the end, doing something about the problem. Historian Roger Tomlin has suggested that when it comes to curse tablets, quote, the practice of inscribing them for two centuries implies that they did work, or rather, that they were believed to work, and perhaps that this belief was justified. The targets of curses might suspect, or know, that they had been cursed, leading to anxiety, stress, and consequent health issues. In other words, curse tablets may have been tremendously effective by actually serving a dual purpose, by working to unsettle the victim's mind and to calm the practitioner's. Though Plautus's play is a comedy, the fate of Menachemus's wife is no joke. When Menachemus grows tired of his wife asking about his business all the time, he threatens to divorce her, dresses his mistress in one of her gowns, and, in the end, offers to auction her off along with the rest of his property, if any buyer is interested. Faced with that degree of scorn from her husband, she becomes a punchline. Magic often provides power to the powerless. In a society as patriarchal as ancient Rome, even free Roman women could find themselves resorting to curses to eliminate their rivals and seize some agency for themselves. In the poet Virgil's first-century epic The Aeneid, the hero, Aeneas, has just abandoned his lover, Queen Dido of Carthage. Having slept with her and possibly consented to marry her, he suddenly remembers his destiny and sets sail for Italy. Heartbroken, Dido issues a curse against Aeneas and the nation he'll one day found. Great orb of light whose holy beam surveys all earthly deeds. Great Juno, patroness of conjugal distress who knows all. Pale Hecate, whose name the witches cry at midnight crossways. O oh, avenging furies, 
Hear me what I pray. If it be fated that yon creature cursed drift to the shore and happy haven find, then may he be assailed by peoples fierce and bold, a banished man. May his own eyes see miserably slain his kin and kind and sue for alien arms. Nor when he basely bows him to receive terms of unequal peace shall he be blessed with scepter or with life, but perish there before his time and lie without a grave upon the barren sand. For this I pray, no love, no truce or amity. Arise out of my dust unknown avenger. Rise. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to Enchanted wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss a new release. If you'd like to support the production of Enchanted, you can visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast for early access and sneak peeks at upcoming episodes. If you can't afford to contribute financially, a free way to offer support is by rating and reviewing Enchanted on your favorite podcatcher. It helps others discover the show, so if you haven't already, Please give Enchanted a five-whatever rating, a heart, a star, or a like, and leave a review. As always, a huge thank you to everyone who's helped us come this far. This episode was produced by me, featuring the voice talents of Kiernan Angley and Jack Krause, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. To learn more about each episode or to get in touch with me, please visit enchantedpodcast.net and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>